seated. Speaking of foreign lands, one other thing, I, uh, just good news uh, that we just found out. My wife uh, got a text, was it yesterday or the day before? When? Day before, day before yesterday. Uh, Zach and Lee Cawthorn are going to be back here with us for the entire month of December from India. So we were not expecting that. They get an opportunity to be on leave. So on a Wednesday night, I think December 16th, they're going to share, and we're going to invite other churches around the area that support them. So you'll get a chance to hear from them. They'll be doing an open Q&A that night. So they'll be spending the, night, uh, the month with us, and they're very excited about seeing the new place. And uh, hopefully it'll be warm enough. Their kids can play on the playground and all that good stuff. But turn with me uh, to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We'll pick up where we left off. This will be part two, if you will. Uh, of Luke 18. We'll start with verse 9, and I'll be reading verses 9 through 17. Uh, Luke chapter 18, starting with verse 9. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. The tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Let's pray again. Father, we just ask for your spirit to speak through your word, prepare the hearts of us, your people. And if anyone here doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, today would be the day that they would come as a little child and know you by name and be known by you. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. From the very beginning, if you've, if you've read the Old Testament, you've read the book of Genesis, if you go back to the very beginning of the Bible, from the very beginning, men and women have tried to approach God, have tried to approach God at some level, whatever conception they have, what it means to approach God. But from the very beginning, God made it clear that coming to him would be defined on his terms. Would you agree with that? That coming to God would be defined on his terms. He's the creator, so he's the one that gives the terms. Now, thankfully, if you know the scriptures, and that's why we Explain to people, you can use Bible basic instructions before leaving earth, God's love letter to man, that the Bible was given with God's terms of peace. But you have to receive the terms, you have to understand the terms, you have to come on his terms. There's no forgiveness on our own terms. There's no forgiveness from God on our own terms and our own conditions. This was demonstrated in the very first family. You know, God created Adam first, then from Adam he created Eve, and they had two sons, Cain and Abel. And right out of the gate, Adam and Eve, they presented, after, after the fall of sin, they presented fig leaves as window dressing, if you will, as a covering and how they approached God. But approaching God with fig leaves 
isn't going to work because he's going to see right through fig leaves. Then they had two sons, and their sons approached God as well. God had told them to approach him, and they approach him, and one approaches God with the exploits of all of his labor. That would be Cain. Look at all the... Look at all the vegetables I've grown. Look at all the amazing work I've done. I've got a green thumb. This is great stuff. He presents that to God. His brother, Abel, he comes with a blood sacrifice. And that God accepted. Cain's approach was rejected. Abel's approach was accepted. And Jesus says here, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Whoever humbles themselves under the terms and conditions God gives, it's going to find grace. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Grace to the humble, he resists the proud. If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word, When Coming to God. When Coming to God. And we'll look at three things this morning. Come bankrupt, come broken, and come believing. Come bankrupt, come broken, and come believing. Start off looking at this, what do I mean by this term bankrupt? Well, Jesus, he cites here that there are two men headed to the same place. you got one who's a Pharisee. You know, the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They knew the law. They could quote the law, but they had added to the law. They had added significantly to the law. They had all kinds of heavy burdens that they weighed down on men, things that they could pull off, maybe economically, that other people couldn't. They had, weighed a lot, they had added a lot of things, but you got these two men, and they're both headed to the same place, at the same time, but they're coming with very different approaches, vastly different approaches. The similarities with these two men will further highlight the key differences between them. They're both men. Not one a woman, one a man. They're both men. Both men, both accomplished men in some respects, because to be a tax collector... We'll get to the fact, we'll get to what that means a little bit later. Even though that was looked down upon, you still had a role of authority as a tax collector and as a Pharisee. They had a level of authority too. Two men, both accomplished men. They're both coming to the temple, coming to the same place. There's only one temple. If you ever go to, you know, if you ever go to Israel and you go to Jerusalem, there the temple sits right there on that high place. It's kind of a flat rock. Mount of Olives uh, directly to the east, and they're coming in the same direction to the temple, both coming to pray. Both have the same end goal that we're going to go there and pray to God. But here's the thing, uh, here's the biggest thing they have in common. The biggest thing they have in common is they both are coming bankrupt. The problem is only one of them knows that. They're both coming bankrupt to the temple, but only one of them knows it. Of the three things that we'll examine this morning in coming to God the Father, only one of the, them, one of these three things, is common to every person on earth. And that's the fact that everyone is bankrupt. Not everyone recognizes this all-important truth, but that's the reality we're born with. We're all born in sin. We're all born with a debt we can't pay. And it's to those who are either unaware of this or unconvinced, this is who Jesus is speaking to. Do you understand that? He's speaking to those that believe they're not bankrupt. Those trusting in themselves, as verse 9 outlines. 
thinking they're righteous because of the way they've lived. The Greek word for trusted here in your Bible, you might uh, in mine, it says, and those that trusted in themselves, is the New King James. But this word trusted in the Greek is patho, patho. It means to persuade, it means to induce by one's words to believe. To believe in what? Well, in other words, what Jesus is pointing out here is these are people who have convinced themselves they're righteous. They've persuaded themselves they're righteous. They've induced their own mind to believing they are righteous. And they'll be accepted. Now, Romans chapter 1 speaks of deceiving ourselves. That's actually convincing ourselves of one thing that's factually not true. God says everyone has a debt they can't pay. Everyone is bankrupt. But you could convince yourself, no, I'm not. God doesn't know what he's talking about. Or he hasn't met me yet. Or he hasn't seen the good works that I've produced. And it's the irony of someone who actually thinks they're deeply religious, like the Pharisee. Here's the irony. This guy thinks he's deeply religious. But without forgiveness... He's deeply religious, but he does not have the forgiveness of God. He doesn't have the indwelling of Christ. And so the deeply religious person, they're piling, up, they're piling up works and a spiritual resume, if you will. Here's my spiritual resume. All the things that I've done, that I've accomplished to showcase to their fellow man, but also to show to God. These are the things that I bring to the table. These are all the things that prove the righteousness that a person like this man believes he had. This Pharisee was delusional about what it meant to pray and what it meant to be accepted by God. His prayer was more to himself. Look at the words it says. It says, and these two men went up to the temple, uh, and it goes on, it says in verse 11, the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Is that amazing, Jesus? Those are red letters in your Bible. Jesus said he prayed with himself. Do you realize a lot of people are praying with themselves and think they're praying with God? These are Jesus' words. He prayed with himself. A lot of people believe when they, oh yeah, I pray all the time. The prayer of the unrighteous, the scripture says, is an abomination to the Lord. He's not hearing every prayer. Now God knows everything that's ever thought, ever said. He hears them all, but it's just like uh, you as a parent. There's times when you are tuning out a certain request, right? You hear it audibly, but you're not hearing it. You ever hear the person saying, I'm not hearing of this, right? I'm not listening to this. This is God. In some respects, if we're not coming on his terms, we are praying with ourselves. This man was praying with himself, delusional about what it meant to pray, what it meant to be accepted by God. He's praying with himself. But he's also praying to everyone else around him that everyone can hear his prayer. Because he's saying things like, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. These lowlifes that we've allowed near the temple. The extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, and especially like this tax collector. He's praying to anyone else that could hear him. See, for the Pharisees in this time period, the Pharisees, their prayer life was a means of public recognition. They prayed in such a way that they were building up their spiritual resume and everyone could hear what they prayed. So they were actually praying with themselves, 
not to God, although they still thought they were praying to God, but they also were praying to impress people. By the way, when we have prayer meetings, don't pray with ourselves and don't pray prayers that are sermons for everybody else around us. Amen? You know, we really, when we pray, we need to pray to God. Even when we gather, have a ladies' prayer or a men's prayer, and this past week was such a blessing. I think we had the most ladies we've ever had at our ladies' prayer. I think we had the most men we had at our men's prayer. Praise the Lord for that. And I, I can't remember, I think it might have been um, Spurgeon, but talked about, you know, let your public prayers be brief, but to the Lord. And so it's a good thing to remember we're praying to God, sincere prayers. We're going to get to little children in a little bit. Sometimes I'd rather hear a child pray than some adults pray. Because at least you know it's authentic, right? You've got to be careful when the kids pray. They could actually expose some things in the house, so you've got to be careful with that too. If you invite them to the public prayer meeting, they might make something public. So just keep that in mind. The Pharisees, they like to expose things to the public. Kids don't know they're doing that. They just do that. Pray for mom and dad. They are really struggling with, oh, my goodness. Uh, we'll pray for you. Your son and daughter really helped us understand what's really going on in your life. But for the Pharisees, this was normal course, public recognition and they really believe that their outward works, they always really believe their outward works were going to be something that God was going to be impressed by. But their outward works were also to everybody else. This was also to put down, to demean other people. And they would flex, if you will, their spiritual superiority. They had no humility, and that's why Jesus said those that exalt themselves, they're eventually going to be humbled. But those that truly are humble will someday be exalted. Under the law, the Jews, they were required to fast. I don't know if you knew this, but they were only required to fast one day out of the year. Now, many you'll see in the Old Testament, you'll see fasts were called. You see a Daniel fast. You'll see different times where uh, believers felt led to fast. But under the law, they were only required to fast one day per year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But this guy, this Pharisee here, he fasted twice a week, and he tithed on everything he owned, including things that the law didn't require a tithe on. These herbs, were not. there was not a required tithe on those. But he did these things. And he didn't just do these things. It was actually to tell everybody else, you guys are trailing way behind me, and the rest of the Pharisees as well. In his own eyes, he saw himself as outperforming others and righteousness and good works. Outperforming. By the way, God has not called us as Christians to perform. He's called us to walk in the Spirit. Amen? We're not to outperform anybody. We're to let the Holy Spirit flow through us. It's not a competition. But he believed that he was far better than those around him. He saw himself as having an ability, and this is a real strong delusion right here, he saw himself as having the ability to produce righteousness. To produce righteousness. We can believe in our own ability to fly. You ever seen someone you know, high on drugs, you've heard the stories where they walked out of a hotel window or something. Tragic thing. We can believe in our ability to fly, but step one step off a cliff or a bridge or a tall building and... Our persuading of ourselves we can fly is quickly negated, isn't it? Tragically. We can believe one thing, but that doesn't make it in any way true. 
Proverbs warns us not to lean to our own understanding. That's why we have to know the Word of God. Our own understanding will get us in a lot of trouble. Our own belief system, our own terms, our own conditions are not reality. The Scriptures and what Jesus says is what is reality. The Scriptures persuade us not to trust in ourselves. This man trusted in himself. Not trust yourself for anything. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do how much? Nothing. We have a hard time believing that. He doesn't really mean that. He means just the big stuff, right? No, apart from him, we can do nothing. Nothing of eternal value. And frankly, uh, if he doesn't give us the next breath, it really does mean nothing. But the least of which we can bring and the least of which we can produce is righteousness. The righteousness comes from God. It doesn't come from us. It comes down out of heaven to us through the Holy Spirit. We're bankrupt morally when we're born. I know babies are cute. They're adorable. They don't look bankrupt morally, but they are. We're born in sin. And we stay that way unless we're born again. That's why Jesus said that in John chapter 3. Speaking to Nicodemus, who, by the way, was a Pharisee as well. And he speaks to him and says, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we're born in sin, but we have to be born a second time, born of the Spirit. That born of the Spirit is where we get the term born again. And Jesus expresses there in John chapter 3 how important it is to have this second birth because the first birth, we're born bankrupt. The second birth, God imputes to us his righteousness, which takes away the bankrupt condition and instead gives a paid in full on our hearts and on our lives. Now, by the way, this doesn't mean, uh, maybe, maybe if you're unsaved here today, this doesn't mean that unsaved people can't do some good things in life. Many good things have been done by unsaved people that are not born again, that don't even believe in the Bible. This doesn't mean that unsaved people can't do some noble things or some courageous things or some nice things or some considerate things. Wouldn't you agree? I've met many unsaved people that do lots of nice things. Sometimes I'm like, man, you're acting nicer than some of the saved people I know. Doesn't mean that unsaved people can't do things that seem to have quite a bit of value. But think about it this way. But that, none of that is actually righteousness. That's not actually righteousness. It doesn't negate the bankrupt condition. It doesn't negate the sin debt. Think about it this way. Let's say you're $1 million in debt. Anyone here? One, no, don't raise your hand. But anyway, you're $1 million in debt. You have to your name nothing. You've, you've, you don't have a job anymore. You've been laid off. You're $1 million in debt, and you're 24 hours away from every single asset you have being taken away. And then, as you're cleaning out your stuff, trying to figure out, am I going to go to a homeless shelter? What am I going to do? You're cleaning out your closets. You find a $100 bill and an old pair of jeans. Now, by the way, it's awful nice when you find unexpected money. In, isn't that great when you have that happen? You're rummaging through some old shorts you haven't wear in 10 years, and there's a $20 bill in there. You feel like you won a million bucks, right? You're like... You don't expect to see that $20 bill there. But you find that $100 bill. Now, you find that $100 bill... And you decide, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take it to the bank to get out of debt. What will that be against $1 million? <laughs> It's not even a tip, right? It doesn't help. That's our condition. We can bring all of our good works to the table. We can do a lot of good things. We could actually you know, be a philanthropist and all kinds of great stuff. But really, the debt load, you're still bankrupt. You haven't even touched the tip of the iceberg. 
Webster's defines bankrupt in a number of ways. One, uh, one definition is to be reduced to a state of financial ruin. And we all understand that's the, the most common term is a financial bankruptcy, to be reduced to financial ruin. Uh, it has another definition, a person, listen to this, a person who is completely lacking in a particular desirable quality or attribute. Well, one desirable attribute that God demands is righteousness, and we are completely lacking in righteousness from the day we're born unless we're born again. Three, it says destitute, destitute, bankrupt, destitute, lacking, ruin. I'm going to ask you a question. How many ways can the Bible make clear if you've read the Bible, if you spend any time reading the Bible, Old or New Testament, how many ways can the Bible make clear that we bring nothing of value to the table when it comes to securing the forgiveness and favor of God? How many ways can God make this clear? It's like walking down a street and seeing the same sign everywhere. You don't have it. 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 You need me. You need me. You need my righteousness. You don't have any righteousness. You can't. But God makes this clear again and again and again. Romans 7, 18, Paul, who I would say was one of the men in all of history used as mightily of, of God as any. He wrote so much of the New Testament. But Paul wrote in Romans 7, 18, he says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. He wrote that after salvation. In my flesh, nothing good dwells. You see, it's Jesus Christ and him crucified that brings righteousness into our heart and into our life. I love the worship song, my defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. You guys know that worship song? My one defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. We need the Lord. He's the only one that brings righteousness to us. Isaiah 64, 6 says, but we are all like an unclean thing. All, and all our righteousness is like filthy rags. Do you hear that? It says our righteousness is filthy rag. See, that's that, that's that $100 bill again that you're trying to pay against a million dollars. It's a nice try, but it doesn't help. You'd be better off just going and buying a bunch of ice cream or something with it, right? It's not going to do much good. All of our righteousness is filthy rags. I have no idea where the ice cream came from. <laughs> I'm not wanting ice cream right now or anything like that, but... Uh, Maybe you now do, but sorry about that. It goes on to say, we all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Eventually, we'll fade away, unless the righteousness of Christ is there, which never fades away. See, both these men are bankrupt, but only one is convinced that he is. One thinks he isn't. The only fundamental difference between any two people on earth, first and foremost when they come to Christ, is one thinks they need Jesus and the other doesn't what it comes down to. One thinks he needs Jesus, the other thinks he doesn't. Both do. Let's look at the next thing, come broken. Come broken. You see the uh, tax collector in verse 13 says, and the tax collector is standing afar off. He doesn't go anywhere near where the rest of the Jewish people are. He stands afar off. He thinks, I know they think I'm unworthy. I think I'm unworthy. He stands afar off and what a contrast. He goes on, it goes on to say that he wouldn't so much raise his eyes. 
He's in, a, he's in a prostrate position, face down, eyes down, won't look up to heaven, and beating on his breast, beating on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. A lot of people don't think they're sinners, right? I do a lot of good stuff. I'm better than most people. You compare me to this guy, and I'm really good, right? God doesn't compare us to other people, but we do compare ourselves to other people. Even after salvation, we can fall into the trap of sometimes comparing ourselves to other people. Not a good thing. But what a contrast between the Pharisees approaching God, his coming to the temple, and this other gentleman, the tax collector. The Pharisees, you know, they were the spiritual benchmarks of the community. A Jewish tax collector was as low as dirt. There was nothing that was more despised. You had, you had lepers that were, ooh, really dirty from a physical perspective, but tax collectors, that was the lowest of professions to any of the Jewish people because they were sellouts to the Roman Empire. They were collecting taxes from Jewish people, and Jewish people didn't think that they should be paying taxes to anybody but God. That was the tithe. They shouldn't give anything but to God, and to give to Rome and to give to Caesar was anathema to them. So it was a low, low, low thought about anyone that was a tax collector. Working for Rome made you a vile traitor to your Jewish heritage and to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the reality is most of the tax collectors had turned their back on God. Most of the tax collectors were pursuing what? Right? Let's say someone was raised in a Christian home. They had been given devotions their whole life. They had been told the whole truth. They heard the whole truth, and they say, I don't want it because I want to be a millionaire, and I don't want to ever think about God ever again. You know, some people make that decision, right? Well, this was a lot of the tax collectors. They didn't care, they didn't care if you like them or not, right? They didn't care if you like them or not. You ever seen a movie where you got the big rich guy, and he doesn't care if anyone likes him or not? Because he said, I don't care, I got all the money. Well, that's the kind of the way tax collectors were. They didn't care if they lost their family. They didn't care if you didn't like them. The bottom line is they were now rich. And that's what they were pursuing. The tax collector, he had chosen money. But apparently, and this sometimes happens, it didn't satisfy him. Well, it always happens that it doesn't satisfy, but sometimes people finally admit that it doesn't satisfy. That's the, that's the key difference. Money will never satisfy. If every one of you had all the money you could have, you've seen the statistics of people that have won the lottery, how they end up divorced and in worse shape than they were before they won it. But he, pursu- he pursued money. It didn't satisfy. And he felt at some point empty and condemned. He felt condemned that, hey, maybe like the rich uh, the rich man lifted up in high hell, that's where I'll be if I continue on this path. And he starts to ask God for mercy. And what a difference in the two prayers. We see in the one a boasting in his prayer. But in the tax collectors, it's a brokenness, isn't it? Beating on his chest, he knows how far he had gone in pursuing his own pleasures. And maybe someone here today, you finally realize how far you've gone in pursuing your own pleasures. You find it doesn't satisfy. It's not bringing any peace. And he comes to God because he wants peace with God. He wants to find God's forgiveness. And he begins to beat upon his breast. And it's an indication. Look at where you're beating when you're beating on your breast. What's just under here? The heart. He's beating on the very heart. It's an indication of where the problem lies. Where the problem lies in his life and where the problem lies in our life. It's just underneath the chest bone here in the heart. It's at the heart level. 
that God is speaking to mankind. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, and who could know it? You watch the news sometime, and you're like, I cannot believe what I just heard. I, I, just the other day, I, I saw a news report. A man set his dog on, burned his dog to death. And by the way, then I, I like to sit, go to the comments field and see, and man... This was like on a, it was like, it was on AP, I, I, I subscribed to Twitter, and it was an AP article, and I went ahead and read, looked on the comments, and most of the comments were from unsaved people, and one by one, almost everybody said, burn the man. These are unsaved people that normally, but you know what? It infuriates to think, how, does, how do people come up with such sadistic, evil ideas, because the heart is deceitfully wicked, but most people don't realize that they too have committed sins that are front to God that will someday stand and give an account for as well. And this is how you can see the desperately wicked things that we see around the world. You know, animals don't torture animals. You ever notice that? They do eat, they kill, they eat. People torture people. People purposely are spiteful. People purposely gossip. People purposely tear other people down. People purposely persecute people. People purposely invade other countries and say, I want your country, if you're a dictator, it will now be mine, right? Because why? We are the ones that have the heart and mind to accept or reject God. And when we reject God, literally all hell can break loose when people reject God. Spurgeon said this, he said, I often think of dear old John Bunyan. You guys know who John Bunyan is, right? Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote the great book, Pilgrim's Progress. And Spurgeon said, I often think of dear old John Bunyan when he said he wished God had made him a toad or a frog or a snake or anything other than a man. For he felt he was so offensive. Oh, I can conceive a nest of vipers, and I can think they are obnoxious. I can imagine a pool of all kinds of loathsome creatures breeding corruption, but there is nothing half so worthy of abhorrence as the human heart. And if you look at the history of mankind, and you look at the evil, you know, you know, just a guy like Joseph Stalin, or Adolf Hitler, or Mao Zedong, and you look at history and you say, how can people be this cruel, and mean, and vicious, and vile? It's the human heart. And the Pharisee doesn't realize how low his heart is, but he thinks the other guy has a low heart, and really they both do. But the one's broken about it. The one says, I, I want to change. That's all. I don't know if I ever got saved. The day I walked the aisle at Calvary Fort, all it was is, God, please change me. Because you can't change yourself. When we humbly come to God, expressing our agreement that our hearts are full of sin, that's what it basically said. We come to God and we say, God, we agree with you. We're in bad shape. Our hearts need to change. Our hearts are full of sin. That our hearts are in need of his life-changing mercy. That's what the man is beating his press for. What? Justice? No. As we said before, and if you've been on any of my Bible studies, do not ask God for justice. Give me justice. No. Don't ever pray that prayer. Actually, we've, you can pray it by mistake and God will still love you and still forgive it. But now you know you've been educated in the scriptures. Don't pray for justice, at least not for yourself. You can pray for justice, maybe for Satan or things like that. That's going to happen. But for ourselves, we ask for mercy. What did the Ark of the Covenant, right there inside the temple, go into the Holy of Holies. What's it called? The mercy seat, not the justice seat. It's not the justice seat. Moses was not given the justice seat, he was given the mercy seat. So we ask for mercy. 
and we have that brokenness, God will hear. In Psalm 34, 18, it said, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and he saves such as have a contrite spirit. They're truly sad. Lord, I'm sorry. Truly, truly broken. Lord, I, how, could I, how could I ever receive your forgiveness? And God says, by reflecting what I say you are and asking for it. You know, some people won't get saved because it seems so simple. I mean, I thought, shouldn't I have to walk to the top of Mount Everest ten times back? No. Jesus walked to the top of Mount Calvary to take care of that. Amen? Psalm 51, 17, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. A broken and contrite heart. That's what the Lord's looking for. Let's look at this last section. That's what God wants. That's what he requires. And if those that will humble themselves, he'll exalt us. Not in this lifetime, by the way. Jesus is not speaking about this lifetime. This lifetime, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. If you're not, I'll overcome. And anyone that desires to live godly will suffer persecution. But the exaltation will be finally when he lifts us out of this earth and up into heaven. That's the exaltation. Even there, we still will want to exalt one name, and that'll be Jesus himself. But it starts by bowing the knee now. Let's look at this last uh, section this morning, come believing. A uh, little bit of a gear shift here, and, uh, but I'm gonna, I, I want to express that these three things all tie together. Even though he's speaking in the one, I want us to understand that all three are so important because you can come broken or you can come knowing you're bankrupt and you come broken, but you still have to believe on the name of Jesus. Amen. Salvation, no other name, the Bible says. There's no other, another, another name among, given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. And so he's, in this last few verses, verse 15 through 17, we see a scene here where uh, these parents are bringing their children, infants and, and uh, more than likely not just infants, but other children as well of different ages. And they're bringing them to Jesus for Jesus to touch them, to bless them to pray over them. Boy, wouldn't you like to have Jesus literally pray over your kids? Can you imagine bringing your kids? You, you thought you met the most righteous pastor in the world. Not me. I mean, you might have met one someday. But, uh, but you bring your kid to Jesus, say, can you please pray over my children? Wow. But the children are brought to Jesus. Parents are bringing their children from the... Um, different areas, to bring them to him. They've heard of what he's done. They've seen the miracles. They've heard his teaching. Please bless it. We know you're sent from God. Bless our kids that they would walk in the ways of the Lord. Whatever it is their request is, we don't know. But they're bringing them to him. But this tells us as parents, those of you that are parents here, parents, bring your children at the youngest age possible to Jesus. The backdrop here says, don't wait till they're old. Bring them when they're young to Jesus. They need his touch. They need him in their life. They need him to take their hands, because you're not going to be there all the time to hold their hands, are you? As parents, there's going to be a lot of times when you're nowhere to be found. You're at work. You're over here. You're over there. They need Jesus holding their hand, walking them through life. Amen? By the way, that word amen, do you know that used to be the most commonly used word in the United States years and years ago, and the cop, it was a term that said, I agree. 
came because many, many pastors and pulpits all across the nation preached that word, amen, 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 gaining people's agreement to say, hey, let's agree with God. If we agree with God, we're going to be in good shape, amen? Now you said it, very good. I'm not going to, uh, uh, Wednesday night, Bill James says amen a lot, doesn't he? He, he wants you in agreement with God, which is a good thing. But parents, are we bringing our children to the Lord? Are we bringing our children to the Lord? Are we truly bringing them to Jesus? Are we doing it as a church? We're a collection of families. We're one family that's a collection of many families uh, from many different backgrounds. Are we bringing collectively our children to the Lord as a church? You know, right out here in these modules right now, there's a bunch of kids out there, some in nursery, some in toddlers, some in 5 to 7, some in 8 to 11 or 12, all out there. Are we bringing them to the Lord and how we pray over them and how we lead them and how we prepare? Philip Brooks said this. He said, he who helps a child helps humanity with an immediateness which no other help given to human creatures in any other stage of human life can possibly give again. In other words, he's saying we've got one pass at this. When they're young, we've got one pass to bring them to Jesus, that they end up being, instead of a Mao Zedong, they end up a D.L. Moody, right? That they end up, instead of being, you know, I don't know, Charles Manson, they're Chuck Smith, right? We get one pass at this, to grab them while they're young and bring them to the Lord. And by the way, Working with children doesn't just change the kids. Guess who else it changes? Us. See, Jesus is demonstrating something here. He, he teaches a lot with just a little, doesn't he? Take a little bit and teach a whole lot. It doesn't just shape the kids. It shapes us, the adults. The disciples, unfortunately here, they saw children as a lesser ministry. This was their perspective. In the Jewish culture, again, kids are to be seen, not heard. I mean, they had their place. I mean, Moses said to teach them when they're young, put it between the front of their eyes, teach them all. But again, the disciples, Jesus is taking everything in the Old Testament, God raises it up another level, and we get to under the new covenant and says, no, 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 your ministry is going to be to children too. But they thought of children as a lesser ministry. Let's not waste Jesus' time with these kids Parents, get away. We're not wasting Jesus' time with kids. We've got big fish to fry here. Not waste time with little kids. After all, kids need snacks and potty breaks. And they spill things. Right, don't they? They break things. And they laugh constantly. And we don't need that much laughing around here, right? These are the disciples. So let's, let's corten off the place. They're liable to spill something. They're liable to break something. They're liable to make it dirty. We had it nice and clean. We had a good adult, pristine, clean environment. Now we're going to bring kids into it. There's adults that start to think that way. I sometimes will think that way. Now I have to catch myself. There's a time out. Where did I get that thought? I came in the other day. We had a bunch of kids here. It was uh, homeschool Friday. And one kid had his finger on the water thing, just, just letting it go. There was no cup there either. Just all over the place. I asked for the Holy Spirit. To, to <laughs> I thought of the hardwood floor, then I thought of, but he doesn't know any better. So, you know, I gently came along, explained how that thing works. 
here's where a cup goes, that kind of thing. But children, they don't know these things, right? They need to be brought to the Lord. They need to be taught truth. Sadly, many in the church still see children's ministry as a lesser ministry. Not important. Not as important as the deep theological discussions. Jesus is going to debunk that, isn't he? Too much work and not enough value working with kids. Jesus said, you got the opposite. It's the opposite. It's all the work and way more value. It's why this church and every church ministry I know, I talked to countless pastors, Calvary Child pastors, other denominational pastors, every pastor I talked to. I get with about 40 pastors here in Richmond. All of them have shortfalls in children's ministry. Constantly losing people. Can't, uh, well, even though they have kids, they won't serve in it. They don't think it's important. Or they just don't have the time for it. Or they got all kinds of other uh, excuses or reasons. Whenever I think of children's ministry, I think of this passage. And by the way, this parallel passage is also found in the book of Matthew and in Mark. It's found in Matthew 19. It's found in Mark chapter 10. So this little admonition from Jesus is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Mark 10, listen to what Mark writes. Mark 10, 4 says, but when Jesus saw it, saw what? That the disciples were pushing the kids away. We're telling the parents, take your kids and go somewhere else. We're talking about big stuff here. We're talking about Pharisees versus Jesus stuff. Get the kids out. Mark 10, 4 says, when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. Now, when Jesus is greatly displeased, guess what? He's greatly displeased. Not mildly displeased, greatly displeased. You know, a couple times, one time Jesus got displeased enough, he took a whip and he cleared out the temple. He said, my house shall not be a house of prayer. My house shall not be a den of thieves, but shall be a house of prayer. Yes, he likes prayer. Now, the, the inverse of this is if he's greatly displeased, they're pushing children away. What does that tell us? He's like, you got it all wrong. Bring more kids in. Serve them well. If we want to displease Jesus, and this, this thought came as I was studying this week, this thought came as I thought about Mark 10, 4. If we want to displease Jesus, let's neglect our kids. At home and in the church. If we want to displease Jesus, you, you can say, well, I, are, are you reading too much in that? Read Mark 10, 4 yourself. If we want to displease Jesus, let's neglect our kids at home. Let's neglect them here at the church. We should have more than enough workers to serve kids, not only in this church, but all the church worldwide. It should be so understood, but again, this is discipleship. Are we understanding what Jesus is teaching? But people say, but it, but it takes hard work, and it takes time, and I've got to prepare, and the kids, they don't, always, they don't always appreciate what I've done. Welcome to kid world, right? <laughs> they don't always appreciate it. Your parents will tell you you didn't either, Right? I used to work with a guy, uh, unsaved, him and his wife both unsaved. They were Jewish, actually. And, um, you know, I, I would even say, man, don't you know what, you know, Abraham prayed for years for Isaac and all this stuff. And, you know, and he said, no, nope, we don't want any kids. No kids, clean carpet. No kids, clean carpet. How about that on your tombstone someday? No kids, but clean carpet. Because you don't get to take carpet with you, but you can take kids with you. Your kids can come to heaven with you. Your carpet's not coming with you to heaven. Neither is your car. Neither is your 401k. None of that stuff. 
The disciples were thinking more along the lines like, hey, no kids around, no chaos, no whining. We can go deeper doctrine, deeper teaching, deeper mysteries. God revealed, bigger problems solved. That's a misnomer anyway, because adults can bring chaos too, can't they? And adults can bring whining. And adults can bring complaining. And adults can break things not like cups, but relationships. Right? That's why God calls all of us children. Because in God's world, we're all kids. And we still all act like kids. And we can break things and whine and complain. Read Moses' fun time with the children of Israel in the wilderness. Right? (laughs) Fun times in the wilderness, right? He called them the children of Israel because they act like children. So Jesus corrects them, corrects the disciples. After they had rebuked the parents, Jesus rebukes them and corrects them for sending the kids and the parents away and lets them know that these kids, these children are imperative to the ministry that they will then establish as the shepherds and the apostles to launch the church. And Jesus said, you're going to go launch the church, but you're never going to forget the children and the ministry to children is going to be front and center. It's not going to be some off-the-side, unimportant thing. It's going to be right there in the center of importance. Build the kids and build the church with them. I don't know who said it because it was author unknown, but uh, it's a quote, and I don't know how long it's been around, but it said, it's better to build strong children than try and repair adults. Better to build strong children than try and repair adults. Repairing adults ain't easy. Because we adults in here, aren't we, right? Repairing ourselves is not easy. You want to really lay the foundation when they're young. That's why we'll be in Bonaire tonight. We're meet, meet incarcerated youth. They're a lot harder to reach when they're hardened criminals at the age of 40 than they are at the age of 15, 13, 14. Jesus has not only received the kids, embraced the kids, loved the kids, but here's the kind of close for us, become like the kids. Not just receive them, not just embrace them, but become like them. In what way? Do you have childlike faith? Do you have childlike faith? Do you have the joy of a child? Can you smile as often as they smile? You know, they laugh way more than adults. They smile way more than adults. I said, well, if they were weighed down with my problems, they wouldn't. But why don't we give our problems to the Lord so we can smile more? You want the worry-free life of a child? They, don't, they, they are not over there in the module thinking about what's in the checking account. That thought has not crossed their mind this morning. They are not thinking about tomorrow's presentation at work. They are not thinking about the paper that has to be written if you're a college student. They're not thinking about that stuff. We, we juggle all that, don't we? And theirs too. We'll take your worries as well. We'll take them all in. Jesus wants us to lay those things at his feet and become like little children. The same childlike faith we entered into salvation, go back there. Remember Michael Wilder's testimony, Adam's Road? That pastor in Orlando, Florida, told him, go read the scriptures like a little child. That's what brought him to faith. Before that, he was actually trying to doctrinally dissertate everything. He said, go read the Bible like a little child. You can't come to God saying, Well, I'll believe God when he answers my top 40 questions. 
or my top 400 questions, or my top 400,000 questions. God says this, do you see the sin and dirt in your life? And if you say yes, God says, now we can get somewhere, right? The only one that's asking the question is God of us, not the other way around. When we humble ourselves and get to say, Lord, I believe that what your terms are, are the only thing important in this discussion. And God says, all right, now you see the sin during your life? Believe on my son, Jesus. A lot of people would say, I don't know about that. That doesn't seem like all that powerful or important. Or I need to study him more. I mean, he, isn't he just the same as Confucius or Buddha or Muhammad or anyone else? You've got to come like a child that believes simple truths. You tell a child, you have sinned and you need Jesus. See, the Holy Spirit makes that truth known to the whole world. We have to suppress it, according to Romans 1. You have to come believing you're bankrupt. You have to come knowing you're broken. But you have to come believing in the only way to heaven and the only way to God, only way to God the Father, which is Jesus. That first step is to humble yourself before him. Little children don't have a problem saying, Jesus loves me, this I know, right? What? Because they studied every single book ever written? No, for the Bible tells me so. You know that's not good enough for many adults. I don't believe the Bible's true anyway. You ever, you ever verified any of it? No. But I know some scientist has. Really? Or some other uh, theologist has. He's the only way to the Father. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. I've spoken with people who've told me, I believe in God, I just don't believe in Jesus. You ever had someone tell you that? I've had people tell me, I've had witnessing opportunities where I've had people say, I believe in God, I just don't believe in Jesus. I'm like, well, if you don't believe in Jesus, you can't believe in God. Not really, because Jesus said, John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God? Believe also in me. See, the fact is, we are bankrupt, aren't we? Broken? Well, we have to be. Believing in Jesus like a little child? Well, that's imperative, isn't it? To come like a little child. Simple faith. John 20, 31 says, But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him you may have life in his name. We have to come bankrupt, because we are. We have to come broken, because he commands it. And we have to come believing because he's the only way. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that your words are true, faithful. We're not trusting in ourselves, but we're trusting in you for eternal life. We're not believing in our own righteousness because we have none. Even our righteousness, Lord, is filthy rags. And Lord, it's my prayer that even if we're saved, Lord, we're more aware of our bankrupt. We're more aware like Paul that in our flesh nothing good dwells. That we're more broken about Maybe just things we've overlooked in our life. And Lord, we're more believing that we would actually cast all of our cares upon you and stop being unbelieving, so full of anxiety and unrest, but be like a little child and, and experience the joy of our salvation. We just ask these things, Lord, in your name. Amen. Hey, we're going to be taking of the